hello again, and welcome to Enlabro. My name is Keith Thompson, and I really do appreciate you guys checking in and listening. Um, this week, we're going to be looking at uh, what I think is the real Infinity War. Yes, we're going to be talking about comic books, comic book characters, and the greatest comic book character of them all. So I hope you enjoy listening, and once again, welcome to Enlabro. Twenty-two billion is a lot of a lot, but that's the number that represents the totality of the Marvel Comics movie franchise. Twenty-two billion dollars, and that is as of July two thousand nineteen. It could be more. It probably is more by now, although twenty twenty may have really ruined that for the whole franchise. Thanks a lot, COVID nineteen. But you know what? We should pay attention to numbers like that and not simply because of the financial impact that they represent to the world. We should pay attention to them because those dollars mean something. They represent something. There's something behind them. And in this case, in my humble opinion, those dollars point to a deep and meaningful story narrative that I believe is written upon the hearts and minds of every human being. I'm talking like DNA-level encoding, that kind of deep, maybe even deeper than that, perhaps on a level that we haven't yet been able to scientifically quantify or that, that, that we haven't discovered yet exists in alignment and embrace and an understanding of the suffering hero epic, which is what it is. People have asked me, do you believe comic book uh, uh, comic book? characters are real. No, I believe they're truer than that, meaning we need these characters. We have an alignment with them. Essentially, that's what every good Marvel comic hero, what every really good comic hero is, a suffering hero who does superhuman things from a sacrificial heart and mind for the sake of others and by extension, the world, i.e. a savior. And for those of us of the faith, of the Christian faith, Jesus is the ultimate representation and manifestation of the suffering hero. He is our Savior. He is our Sovereign. He is our Lord. He is the all in all, the everything. He's the one who overcame death, hell, and the grave. He is, by all accounts, a superhero. And for years, I served, read, studied, and believed the story of Jesus mainly, primarily in this way, Jesus as the conquering hero. And make no mistake about it, I believe he is, but somewhere along the way, my superhero understanding of Jesus began to change. Because unlike comic book superheroes, Jesus does something much different than they do. He invites us to become like him. You know, only Spider-Man can be Spider-Man in the Spider-Man comic book. Only Thor can be Thor in the Thor comic book. Only Superman can be Superman in the Superman comic book. I mean, you get the point. 
But with Jesus, it's different because unlike those characters, Jesus purposefully, specifically says, I'm going to make a way possible for you to become like me. You know, the Avengers may have fought the movie screen version of the Infinity Wars, but Jesus invites us to battle with him in the real one. Because the true Infinity War is within us. The true Infinity War is us. Each and every day that we are allowed to live on this earth, we are given the chance to do battle with ourselves, within ourselves, with our old nature, with our old way of existing, with our old mindset, with our old understanding of who we are. We are battling each day within our own version of a triune existence, our past self, our present self, and most importantly, our future self. And these things, I think, align quite nicely with the understanding of the Godhead Trinity, God the Father, the authority, the all-encompassing, the source for all things that can be and have become. Our past self is a lot like this. It's our authority. It's what has happened to us. It's what we can rely on and what can be recorded, what has been recorded. It's what we turn to when we're unsure or we're afraid. It's what we run to when we don't know what to do. It's what a group of people were turned to when asked to solve a problem or discuss a topic. Every single one of them will share out of their own experience and believe that their experience is the authority in the room whether they're right or not. It's why I tell people all the time, you are your own best counselor because you're going to listen to you long before you listen to anybody else. It's why the old saying is mostly true. The more things change, the more they stay the same because we are nothing if not the collection of our past experience. God the Son, the present existing manifestation of God, the one you can touch, feel, and talk to, the one who is here and in the moment, the one who knows what it's like to be human. Our present lines up nicely with the idea of Jesus, the Son of God, as Jesus embodies God presently, so we embody our past and our present, our authority, and how we exist in the moment. These two things, our past and our present, come together to make us who we are at any given moment. Jesus offers an example to live by in this, in that he was able to embrace and occupy his past as a propulsion and the power for the present. Jesus' authority didn't rule over him as an authoritarian. As he said, I and the Father are one. In other words, we are equal. We walk in lockstep with one another. My authority, Jesus would say, doesn't rule me. My authority is me. Our past should be an authority to us in in the same manner, but it shouldn't become our authoritarian. Just because you've believed something a certain way or done something a certain way doesn't mean that it's right or that it's even true. And you always must look at the authority of your past as propulsion and power to the future, which brings up God, the Holy Spirit, the promised comforter, the one that helps us navigate that which has not yet fully been formed or revealed. Our future is our own version of the spirit. It is the thing which is, but it's not yet. It's both undermined, or excuse me, it's both undetermined, undeterred, and sometimes undermined. And the people who undermine it the most, the ones who have the most to lose, well, that's us. But it doesn't 
take away from its power, everyday power, for the potential of what we can become. You know, the tagline of Enlabro is releasing the spirit of human capital. I chose that because I believe the spiritual capital of human potential is the most underutilized resource in the world. I believe that's what happens when you relegate spirituality to a largely religious construct. Spiritual capital is the light and the salt of our lives. And I believe we've done the very thing Jesus warned us not to do with it. We've placed it under a basket and we've allowed it to be trampled underfoot by men. We ourselves have trampled it under our own feet. We've taken our spiritual capital and we've learned to only let it out in sanctuaries on certain days of the week, safe places where we don't have to worry about being misunderstood, or at least we hope we won't be misunderstood. I think the sanctuary is our modern day version of the bushel basket that Jesus was warning about us. Nobody lights a candle and places it under a bushel basket, except we do most of the time. People don't live out of their spiritual potential each day. People live more out of their calendars and their to-do lists than they do out of their spiritual potential. They bottle their spiritual potential up until they're allowed to release it sometime later in the week. But it's why we have to pay attention to the work of the cross in our own hearts and minds each day. Take up your own cross daily and follow me. Why? Because there are some things that just can't wait and shouldn't wait till Sunday morning from 9 to 12 o'clock. Because the challenge is here. It's right now. It's always right in front of us. Our past, present, and future is always converging, or at least they're always trying to converge in an integrated way, a way that makes each and every moment of our lives a building block towards that thing that we call our own salvation. As the scriptures state, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling. But wait a minute. I thought salvation was already worked out through the death of Christ. Why would I even need to bother working it out myself? That's a great question. Hey, here's a better one. Why do you need to carry around your own cross daily if the cross Jesus died upon was all it took to be saved? Why does Jesus offer? No, scratch that. Why does Jesus make us aware of our own cross before he ever goes and dies upon his own? Keep in mind the timing on this. Before Jesus ever goes and dies on the cross of Calvary, he looks at his own disciples in the present moment and says, if anyone is going to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their own cross daily, and follow me. If we didn't need the cross, why in the world would Jesus issue us one? If his cross was going to take care of everything? Why would we need our own? The answer should be plain enough, but for some reason we have a difficult time accepting the idea that there is a process to our own salvation, and it can't be short-circuited through any device or scheme or tradition invented by human beings. Religion, power, fame, money, giving, sacrifice, service, fellowship, worship, I don't care what it is, they're no good. They don't work. They can't give you any relief because the process is implanted in you. It is you. It's unique. It's internal. It belongs to you, and it encompasses everything you have been, are, and ever hope to become. All of those things. All of those things I listed. Religion, power, fame, money, worship, fellowship, da 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 da, da fill in the blank. I don't care what you fill it in with. It cannot help you escape yourself.
can give you options, but you're stuck with you. You're stuck with your past. You're stuck with your present. You're stuck with your future. All of those things I mentioned, they only, they only will postpone the inevitable. At some point, you must turn. You must fight. You must recognize the infinity war that's inside of you. It's the real struggle. The flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. It's the real struggle. It's the one everyone references when they say the struggle is real. It's the real Armageddon. The final battle for humanity takes place each and every day within our own minds, within our own hearts, within our own souls. We need to stop looking for it to happen sometime, someday in the Middle Eastern, in some Middle Eastern country. It's happening now in your life, in your living room, in my life, in my living room. It's the war for our minds, for our mindset, for a mind set upon the spirit of love and life. And make no mistake, the future version of yourself is on the line. The spiritual version, the more loving version of you, the more empathetic, the more empathic, the more approachable, the more impactful, the more creative, the more imaginative, and what can I say, the more eternal version of you is on the line. Do you not know that you, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, the authority, and that you are not your own? No, you're not. You are a version of yourself that has not yet been realized, has not yet been created, has not yet fully been formed by the work of the cross that is in you. You're to become a walking, living, breathing, loving, giving temple of spiritual power and potential. All of this potential brings you to one goal and one goal only, to learn how to love and to learn how to love well. It's what this war is all about, and it's why we need to fight it. Because don't forget, the struggle is real. Thanks for listening. Holiday edition, Thanksgiving leftovers is what we're going to be calling this episode. Not really a part of the episode series, but hey, 
it's a holiday. We've all been uh, having, hopefully having fun with loved ones and eating well. And if you haven't, well, that's kind of what this, uh, this podcast is about today. There are plenty of people who have probably been separated by this dastardly virus that we've been experiencing. And you're not alone out there. So hang on and enjoy this episode, special episode of In Labro, Thanksgiving Leftovers. Thanksgiving is, without a doubt, uh, my favorite holiday. Um, There's not much not to like about it, to be honest with you. You don't have to buy anybody gifts. No one has to go and buy gifts for you. You just get together with family, friends, loved ones, people that you care about. Eat good food. Lots of it. Great desserts. Great conversation. Watch football watch movies, play cards, whatever it is you want to do on this holiday is pretty much uh, up to you. Great day to just be thankful and relax with people you love. I have always loved the holiday of Thanksgiving. As I have wandered through the wilderness seeking buried treasure, it becomes easier and more obvious, uh, though, to tell the difference between fool's gold and genuine treasure. And for me, Thanksgiving Day is a true find, a eureka discovery, a buried chest full of precious and valuable things. Now, I know I didn't discover Thanksgiving Day. I'm not trying to take credit for it. It's been a fixture in our country and our lives for a very long time. It's written on the calendar. It's fixed in our hearts and minds. It's the day we get together with family and friends to celebrate and remember how blessed and how fortunate we are to live under the banner of freedom and liberty, a day to set aside our trials and difficulties and face the reality that while we may struggle and stumble and fall sometimes, we live in a place that makes it possible to get back up, to rise above, and to flourish. Thanksgiving is the antidote for many of our most pernicious negative attitudes, resentment, jealousy, bitterness, coveting something our neighbor has, and internal strife. They can all be brought into submission to thanksgiving if we're willing to do the hard work of pushing through the fog and the confusion and into the light of gratitude. Thanksgiving, giving thanks. It's actually something that's good for us. It's good for our mental health. It's good for our emotional well-being. It's good for our physical health and stress levels. It has the potential to create marvelous opportunities for inward generosity and love. It's a powerful elixir for the soul. This year has brought its own unique brand of hardship, something no one could have predicted and that no one could have planned or prepared for. An itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny invader known as the coronavirus has made its crowning presence known on a global scale. 
It has changed the very fabric of social order, social decorum, and social organization. Its unseen presence lurks over just about everything that we're doing right now. Just when we think we're back to some semblance of normal, it rears its ugly head and says, not so fast. COVID-19 slapped me pretty hard this week when my wife called on Tuesday to tell me that our daughter and husband and her husband would not be coming for Thanksgiving because she had been exposed to someone who tested positive. As I drove home from work, I couldn't believe the level of disappointment that had hit me. It was really overwhelming. Stupid damn virus, I was thinking. Stupid idiotic rules. Who does the CDC think they are? Really? Is this craziness? Is this insanity or what? My favorite holiday, a holiday that literally I do wait for every single year, was going to be less than what I had expected. For me, it was a hard blow to my ability to be thankful, to have gratitude in my heart. And as I sat and stewed in my disappointment, I realized how ruinous disappointment is to the human psyche and soul. Disappointment is the interstate highway to bitterness, despair, and resentment. It goes something like this. Expectations often lead to unmet expectations, then bitterness, then despair, and finally, deep, deep resentment. And it's surprising how little time it takes to go from expectation to resentment. It's amazing how it can knock us off course and into a destructive spiral of dysfunction and funk. It happens so quickly and so suddenly, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, your mindset and attitude can go from sweet to bitter, happy to sad, grateful to resentful. Just when you think you've mastered the ugliness of the old self-absorbed nature, something happens that doesn't fit the plan or the script that you've come up with, and wham, you're hit with the reality of how deep and powerful this self-centered curse is. The I, the me, the my, current supercharges, our psyche and screams from somewhere deep down, I want my way. You know, a long time ago, a friend told me this about the old nature. It's not how it acts, it's how it reacts. Boy, isn't that true? My reactions to things tell me way more about what's really going on inside of me than the outward facade that I create to protect myself and others. My reaction, my initial response, my, my gut instinct when I first hear the bad news or, the unmet, or, or meet the unmet expectation tells a lot about what's going on deep down in my soul, whether I want to admit it or not. How quickly we bring our reactions into line with the life-giving, life-altering love of Christ is the issue, and it requires us to do the spiritual workout of our own salvation. Which is where I was for most of Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning. I was working my way out of a deep, stinky funk that had killed, stolen, and destroyed my joy. And it would have been really, really, really easy to stay there. Way too easy. I mean, I was using some major mental bandwidth and dedicating some major emotional capital to feeling victimized and betrayed. 
It was impressive, really, by any measure. It's amazing how quickly your mind can go from zero to 60 on the lonesome loser superhighway. A small disappointment can quickly escalate into a convincing conspiracy of global proportions. The world is literally out to get me. I was incredibly uncomfortable and uneasy with what I was feeling and who I was feeling it towards. I was feeling it towards my daughter, who I would literally take a kill shot to the head and the heart at the same time for this, for this girl, for this woman. She was becoming the object of my ire and my disappointment. I just couldn't believe that she would choose to do the responsible adult thing rather than throw caution to the wind and make me happy. I mean, who does she think she is anyway? Little brat? Yeah, that's the wretchedness of the old nature. That's what it looks like and sounds like. At least it does inside my head. Now, none of that reflects how I truly feel about her. I mean, seriously, anyone who knows me knows she is the apple of my eye, literally. But in the moment of reaction, all of it sure feels true. Which is why I come back around and realize that the most significant and most needed treasure in my life is once again the cross that I've been offered and invited to carry each and every day. My need for transformation is not complete. The cross hasn't done its complete work in me. It's a daily encounter. It's a daily struggle. My need for this mind-bending and shaping image of crucifixion is more than just an inspirational idea or a piece of jewelry that someone wears around their neck. It's critical to my very survival if I want to become a person of embracing and sacrificial love. If that's really my goal, if that's really who I want to be, to reflect the love of and grace of Christ in my own life to others, then you better believe I need to carry this cross around with me every single moment I live and breathe. For a few moments early on Wednesday morning, I offered myself to the process that I've been advocating for these last eight episodes of Enlabro, the process of offering my mind and my mindset to the difficult, deliberate, and often painful work of the cross of Christ that we must willfully and intentionally carry each day. This cross is much more than a religious icon or a no-money-down, easy payment plan for sin and wretchedness. It is the way that we adopt and integrate the very nature of Christ into our life. And it's ultimately how we break through to true and lasting gratitude and true and lasting thanksgiving. The cross doesn't stoically ignore our feelings and pretend that they aren't valid or important. Everything, let me say that again, everything that you and I feel is important because it gives us the opportunity to see, hear, and experience it through the divine lens of sanctifying and instructional grace. Our feelings, thoughts, and experiences become the very platforms on which we offer ourselves, the altars on which we offer ourselves to the way, the truth, and the life that God is attempting to orchestrate in us and through us for truly glorious and amazing possibilities. It's why scripture tells us to take every thought captive. Why? Well, listen to that entire verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We are destroying 
speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because I don't know about you, there are patterns of thought and speculation that I carry around with me in my head that can't be reasoned with and cannot be controlled. They need to be torn down and destroyed through the sacrifice of a crucifying, humiliating death. And then made new through the potential of restorative resurrection. Taking every thought captive and aligning our thoughts to the obedience of Christ means we are aligning it with the capacity to love and love sacrificially. For me, this process happened rather quickly because, honestly, the more you practice it and allow it to access your heart, mind, and soul, the easier it gets and the more quickly you run to embrace your cross. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This process allowed me to finally sit down and write this to my daughter, who conveniently had kind of been ignoring me because I think she sensed just how disappointed her father was. But this is what I wrote to her on Wednesday morning. Current situation, sitting stewing in my disappointment over the Thanksgiving COVID-19 situation. To say I'm not horribly disappointed would be a lie. I am. But I also know you guys are making the tough and responsible choice. So I'm also deeply proud of you as well. To have these seemingly contrary emotions at work inside of me is a bit too much and overwhelming. But I can't just stay silent and leave you wondering about how I feel towards both of you. I hate the sucky, shitty situation, but love both of you and can't wait for this madness to pass and normalcy to return. So much love and respect. It's now Thursday afternoon. We've eaten our Thanksgiving feast. We've cleaned up, dishes washed, leftovers put away for another meal later, maybe tomorrow. The sun has gone down and on, on another great and fun Thanksgiving, and I'm now sincerely grateful to be sharing this story with you. This isn't religious. It's not pretty. It's not neat, and it's definitely not sanitized, but I promise you it is real. The beautiful picture of a disappointed but restored heart that is ready to love and embrace again. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. I love you. I love you all. Oh, 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 oh,